Chapter Nine of The Invasion by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Nine: Revolts in Shoreditch and Islington. On the night of September twenty-seven, a very serious conflict entailing much loss of life on both the London civilian and German side occurred at the point where Kingsland Road joins Old Street, Hackney Road, and High Street. Across both Hackney and Kingsland Roads the barricades built before the bombardment still remained in a half-ruined state, and he attempted clearing them away being repulsed by the angry inhabitants. Dalston, Kingsland, Bethnal Green, and Shoreditch were notably antagonistic to the invaders, and several sharp encounters had taken place. Indeed, those districts were discovered by the enemy to be very unsafe. The conflict in question, however, commenced at the corner of Old Street about 9.30 in the evening, by three German tailors from Cambridge Road being insulted by two men, English labourers. The tailors appealed in German to four Westphalian infantrymen who chanced to be passing, and who subsequently fired and killed one of the Englishmen. This was the signal for a local uprising. The alarm given, hundreds of men and women rushed from their houses, many of them armed with rifles and knives, and taking cover behind the ruined barricades, opened fire upon a body of fifty Germans who were very quickly ran up. The fire was returned when from the neighboring houses a perfect hail of lead was suddenly rained upon the Germans, who were then forced to retire down High Street towards Liverpool Street Station, leaving many dead. Very quickly news was sent over the telephone, which the Germans had now established in many quarters of London, and large reinforcements were soon upon the scene. The men of Shoreditch had, however, obtained two Maxim guns which had been secreted ever since the entry of the Germans into the metropolis, and as the enemy endeavoured to storm their position they swept the street with a deadly fire. Quickly the situation became desperate, but the fight lasted over an hour. The sound of firing brought hundreds upon hundreds of Londoners upon the scene. All these took arms against the Germans, who, after many fruitless attempts to storm the defences, and being fired upon from every side, were compelled to fall back again. They were followed along High Street into Bethnal Green Road, up Great Eastern Street into Hoxton Square and Pitfield Street, and there cut up, being given no quarter at the hands of the furious populace. In those narrow thoroughfares they were powerless, and were therefore simply exterminated. The victory for the men of Shoreditch was complete, over three hundred and fifty Germans being killed, while our losses were only about fifty. The conflict was at once reported to von Kronhelm, and the very fact that he did not send exemplary punishment into that quarter was sufficient to show that he feared to arouse further the hornet's nest in which he was living, and more especially that portion of the populace north of the city. News of the attack quickly spreading inspired courage in every other part of the oppressed metropolis. The successful uprising against the Germans in Shoreditch incited Londoners to rebel, and in various other parts of the metropolis there occurred outbreaks. Von Kromhelm had found to his cost that London was not to be so easily cowed after all. The size and population of the metropolis had not been sufficiently calculated upon. 
It was as a country in itself, while the intricacies of its byways formed a refuge for the conspirators who were gradually completing their preparations to rise en masse and strike down the Germans wherever found. In the open country his great army could march, maneuver, and use strategy. But here, in the maze of narrow London streets, it was impossible to know in one thoroughfare what was taking place in the next. Supplies, too, were now running very short. The distress among our vanquished populace was most severe, while von Kronhelm's own army was put on meagre rations. The increasing price of food and consequent starvation had not served to improve the relations between the invaders and the citizens of London, who, though they were assured by various proclamations that they would be happier and more prosperous under German rule, now discovered that they were being slowly starved to death. Their only hope, therefore, was in the efforts of that now gigantic organization, the League of Defenders. A revolt occurred in Pentonville Road, opposite King's Cross Underground Station, which ended in a fierce and terrible fray. A company of the Bremen Infantry Regiment No. 75, belonging to the Ninth Corps, were marching from the city road towards Regent's Park, when several shots were fired at them from windows of shops almost opposite the station. Five Germans fell dead, including one lieutenant, a very gorgeous person who wore a monocle. Another volley rang out before the infantrymen could realize what was happening, and then it was seen that the half-ruined shops had been placed in such a state of defense as to constitute a veritable fortress. The fire was returned, but a few moments later a Maxim spat its deadly fire from a small hole in a wall, and a couple of dozen of the enemy fell upon the granite sets of the thoroughfare. The rattle of musketry quickly brought forth the whole of that populous neighborhood, or all, indeed, that remained of them, the working-class district between Pentonville Road and Copenhagen Street. Quickly the fight became general. The men of Bremen endeavored to take the place by assault, but found that it was impossible. The strength of the defenses were amazing, and showed only too plainly that Londoners were in secret preparing for the great uprising that was being planned. In such a position were the houses held by the Londoners that their fire commanded both the Pentonville and King's Cross roads, but very soon the Germans were reinforced by another company of the same regiment, and these being attacked in the rear from Rodney Street, Cumming Street, Weston Street, York Street, Winchester Street and other narrow turnings leading into the Pentonville Road, the fighting quickly became general. The populace came forth in swarms, men and women, armed with any weapon or article upon which they could lay their hands, and all fired with the same desire. Hundreds of men who came forth were armed with rifles which had been carefully secreted on the entry of the enemy into the metropolis. The greater part of these men, indeed, had fought at the barricades in North London and had subsequently taken part in the street fighting as the enemy advanced. Some of the arms had come from the League of Defenders, smuggled into the metropolis nobody exactly knew how. Up and down the King's Cross, Pentonville and Caledonian roads the crowd swayed and fought. The Germans against that overwhelming mass of angry civilians seemed powerless. Small bodies of the troops were cornered in the narrow by-streets and then given no quarter. Brave-hearted Londoners, though they knew well what dire punishment they must inevitably draw upon themselves, had taken the law into their own hands and were shooting or stabbing every German who fell into their hands. 
the scene of carnage in that hour of fighting was awful. The Daily Chronicle described it as one of the most fiercely contested encounters in the whole history of the siege. Shoreditch had given courage to King's Cross, for unknown to von Kronhelm, houses in all quarters were being put in a state of defense, their position being carefully chosen by those directing the secret operations of the League of Defenders. For over an hour the houses in question gallantly held out, sweeping the streets constantly with their maxim. Presently, however, on further reinforcements arriving, the German colonel directed his men to enter the houses opposite. In an instant a door was broken in, and presently glass came tumbling down as muzzles of rifles were poked through the panes, and soon sharp crackling showed that the Germans had settled down to their work. The defense of the Londoners was most obstinate. In the streets Londoners attacked the enemy with utter disregard for the risks they ran. Women, among them many young girls, joined in the fray, armed with pistols and knives. After a while a great body of reinforcements appeared in the Euston Road, having been sent hurriedly along from Regent's Park. Then the option was given to those occupying the fortified house to surrender, the colonel promising to spare their lives. The Londoners peremptorily refused. Everywhere the fighting became more desperate, and spread all through the streets leading out of St. Pancras, York, and Caledonian Roads, until the whole of that great neighborhood became the scene of a fierce conflict in which both sides lost heavily. Right across Islington the street fighting spread, and many were the fatal traps set for the unwary German who found himself cut off in that maze of narrow streets between York Road and the Angel. The enemy, on the other hand, were shooting down women and girls as well as the men, even the non-combatants, those who came out of their homes to ascertain what was going on, being promptly fired at and killed. In the midst of all this, somebody ignited some petrol in a house a few doors from the chapel in Pentonville Road, and in a few moments the whole row of buildings were blazing furiously, belching forth black smoke and adding to the terror and confusion of those exciting moments. Even that large body of Germans now upon the scene were experiencing great difficulty in defending themselves. A perfect rain of bullets seemed directed upon them on every hand, and today's experience certainly proves that Londoners are patriotic and brave, and in their own districts they possess a superiority over the trained troops of the Kaiser. At length, after a most sanguinary struggle, the Londoners' position was carried, the houses were entered, and twenty-two brave patriots, mostly of the working class, taken prisoners. The populace, now realizing that the Germans had, after all, overpowered their comrades in their fortress, fell back. But, being pursued northward towards the railway line between Highbury and Barnesbury stations, many of them were dispatched on the spot. What followed was indeed terrible. The anger of the Germans now became uncontrollable. Having in view von Kronhelm's proclamation, which sentenced to death all who, not being in uniform, fired upon German troops, they decided to teach the unfortunate populace a lesson. As a matter of fact, they feared that such revolts might be repeated in other quarters. So they seized dozens of prisoners, men and women, and shot them down. Many of these summary executions took place against the wall of the St. Pancras station at the corner of Euston Road. Men and women were piteously sent to death. 
wives, daughters, fathers, sons were ranged up against the wall, and at signal from the colonel fell forward with bullets through them. Of the men who so gallantly held the fortified house, not a single one escaped. Strings of men and women were hurried to their doom in one day, for the troops were savage with the lust of blood, and von Kronhelm, though he was aware of it by telephone, lifted not a finger to stop those arbitrary executions. But enough of such details. Suffice it to say that the stones of Islington were stained with the blood of innocent Londoners, and that those who survived took a fierce vow of vengeance. Von Kronhelm's legions had the upper hand for the moment, yet the conflict and its bloody sequel had the effect of arousing the fiercest anger within the heart of every Briton in the metropolis. What was in store for us none could tell. We were conquered, oppressed, starved, yet hope was still within us. The League of Defenders were not idle, while South London was hourly completing her strength. It seems that after quelling the revolt at King's Cross, wholesale arrests were made in Islington. The guilt or innocence of the prisoners did not seem to matter, von Kronhelm dealing out to them summary punishment. Terror reigns in London. One newspaper correspondent, whose account is published this morning in South London, having been sent across the Thames by carrier pigeon, many of which were now being employed by the newspapers, had an opportunity of witnessing the wholesale executions which took place yesterday afternoon outside Dorchester House, where von Kleppen had established his quarters. Von Kleppen seems to be the most pitiless of the superior officers. The prisoners ranged up for inspection in front of the big mansion were mostly men from Islington, all of whom knew only too well the fate in store for them. Walking slowly along and eyeing the ranks of these unfortunate wretches, the German general stopped here and there, tapping a man on the shoulder or beckoning him out of the rear ranks. In most cases, without further word, the individual thus selected was marched into the park at Stanhope Gate, where a small supplementary column was soon formed. League of Defenders, Daily Bulletin The League of Defenders of the British Empire, publicly announced to Englishmen, although the north of London is held by the enemy, won that England will soon entirely regain command of the sea, and that a rigorous blockade of the German ports will be established. 2. That three of the vessels of the North German Lloyd Transatlantic Passenger Service have been captured, together with a number of minor German ships in the Channel and Mediterranean. 3. That four German cruisers and two destroyers have fallen into the hands of the British. 4. That England's millions are ready to rise. Therefore, we are not yet beaten. Be prepared and wait. League of Defenders, Central Office, Bristol. Those chosen knew that their last hour had come. Some clasped their hands and fell upon their knees, imploring pity, while others remained silent and stubborn patriots. One man, his face covered with blood and his arm broken, sat down and howled in anguish, and others wept in silence. Some women, wives and daughters of the condemned men, tried to get within the park to bid them adieu and to urge courage, but the soldiers beat them back with their rifles. Some of the men laughed defiantly. Others met death with a stony stare. The eyewitness saw the newly dug pit that served as common grave, and he stood by and saw them shot, and their corpses afterwards flung into it. 
one young fair-haired woman, condemned by Von Kleppen, rushed forward to that officer, threw herself upon her knees imploring mercy, and protested her innocence wildly. But the officer, callous and pitiless, simply motioned to a couple of soldiers to take her within the park, where she shared the same fate as the men. How long will this awful state of affairs last? We must die or conquer. London is in the hands of a legion of assassins, Bavarians, Saxons, Württembergers, Hessians, Badeners, all now bent upon prolonging the reign of terror and thus preventing the uprising that they know is, sooner or later, inevitable. Terrible accounts are reaching us of how the Germans are treating their prisoners on Hounslow Heath, at Enfield, and other places, of the awful sufferings of the poor unfortunate fellows, of hunger, of thirst, and of inhuman disregard for either their comfort or their lives. At present we are powerless, hemmed in by our barricades. Behind us, upon Sydenham Hill, General Bamford is in a strong position, and his great batteries are already defending any attack upon London from the south. From the terrace in front of the Crystal Palace his guns can sweep the whole range of southern suburbs. Through Dulwich, Hearn Hill, Champion Hill, and Denmark Hill are riding British cavalry, all of whom show evident traces of the hard and fierce campaign. We see from Sydenham constant messages being heliographed, for General Bamford and Lord Byfield are in hourly communication by wireless telegraphy or by other means. What is transpiring at Windsor is not known, save that every night there are affairs of outposts with the Saxons, who on several occasions have attempted to cross the river by pontoons, and have on each occasion been driven back. It was reported to Parliament at its sitting in Bristol yesterday that the Cabinet had refused to entertain any idea of paying the indemnity demanded by Germany, and that their reply to von Kronhelm is one of open defiance. The brief summary of the speeches published shows that the government are hopeful, notwithstanding the present black outlook. They believe that when the hour comes for the revenge, London will rise as a man, and that socialists, nonconformists, labor agitators, anarchists, and demagogues will unite with us in one great national patriotic effort to exterminate our conquerors as we would exterminate vermin. Mr. Gerald Graham has made another great speech in the House, in which he reported the progress of the League of Defenders and its widespread ramifications. He told the government that there were over seven millions of able-bodied men in the country ready to revolt the instant the word went forth, that there would be terrible bloodshed, he warned them, but that the British would eventually prove the victors he was assured. He gave no details of the organization for to a great measure it was a secret one, and von Kronhelm was already taking active steps to combat its intentions. But he declared that there was still a strong spirit of patriotism in the country, and explained how sturdy Scots were daily making their way south, and how men from Wales were already massing in Oxford. The speech was received on both sides of the house with ringing cheers, when, in conclusion, he promised them that, within a few days, the fiat would go forth, and the enemy would find himself crushed and powerless. South London, he declared, is our stronghold, our fortress. Today it is impregnable, defended by a million British patriots, and I defy von Kronhelm, indeed I dare him to attack it.
Von Kronhelm was, of course, well aware of the formation of the defenders, but treated the League with contempt. If there was any attempt at a rising, he would shoot down the people like dogs. He declared this openly and publicly, and he also issued a warning to the English people in the German official gazette, a daily periodical printed in one of the newspaper offices in Fleet Street in both German and English. The German commander fully believed that England was crushed, yet as the days went on he was puzzled that he received no response to his demand for indemnity. Twice he had sent special dispatch-bearers to Bristol, but on both occasions the result was the same. Diplomatic representations had been made in Berlin through the Russian ambassador, who was now in charge of British interests in Germany, but all to no purpose. Our foreign minister simply acknowledged receipt of the various dispatches. On the continent the keenest interest was manifested at what was apparently a deadlock. The British had, it was known, regained command of the sea. Von Kronhelm's supplies were already cut off. The cables in direct communication between England and Germany had been severed, and the continental press, especially the Paris journals, gleefully recounted how two large Hamburg-American liners, attempting to reach Hamburg by passing north of Scotland, had been captured by British cruisers. Englishmen, your homes are desecrated, your children are starving, your loved ones are dead. Will you remain in cowardly inactivity? The German eagle flies over London, Hull, Newcastle, and Birmingham are in ruins. Manchester is a German city. Norfolk, Essex, and Suffolk form a German colony. The Kaiser's troops have brought death, ruin, and starvation upon you. Will you become Germans? No. Join the defenders and fight for England. You have England's millions beside you. Let us rise. Let us drive back the Kaiser's men. Let us shoot them at sight. Let us exterminate every single man who has desecrated English soil. Join the new League of Defenders. Fight for your homes. Fight for your wives. Fight for England. Fight for your king. The National League of Defenders Head Offices, Bristol, September 21st, 1910. In the Channel, too, a number of German vessels had been seized, and one that showed fight off the North Foreland was fired upon and sunk. The public at home, however, were more interested in supremacy on land. It was all very well to have command of the sea, they argued, but it did not appear to alleviate perceptibly the hunger and privations on land. The Germans occupied London, and while they did so all freedom in England was at an end. A great poster-headed Englishman, here reproduced, was seen everywhere. The whole country was flooded with it, and thousands upon thousands of heroic Britons, from the poorest to the wealthiest, clamored to enroll themselves. The movement was an absolutely national one in every sense of the word. The name of Gerald Graham, the new champion of England's power, was upon everyone's tongue. Daily he spoke in various towns in the west of England, in Plymouth, Taunton, Cardiff, Portsmouth, and Southampton, and assisted by the influential committee among whom were many brilliant speakers and men whose names were as household words, he aroused the country to the highest pitch of hatred against the enemy. The defenders, as they drilled in various centres through the whole of the west of England, were a strange and incongruous body. Grey-bearded army pensioners, 
ranged side by side with keen, enthusiastic youths, advised them and gave them the benefit of their expert knowledge. Volunteer officers in many cases assumed command, together with retired drill sergeants. The digging of trenches and the making of fortifications were assigned to navvies, bricklayers, platelayers, and agricultural laborers, large bodies of whom were under railway gangers and were ready to perform any excavation work. The Maxims and other machine guns were mostly manned by volunteer artillery, but instruction in the working of the Maxim was given to select classes in Plymouth, Bristol, Portsmouth, and Cardiff. Time was of utmost value, therefore the drilling was pushed forward day and night. It was known that von Kronhelm was already watchful of the movements of the League, and was aware daily of its growth. In London, with the greatest secrecy, the defenders were banding together. In face of the German proclamation posted upon the walls, Londoners were holding meetings in secret and enrolling themselves. Though the German eagle flew in Whitehall, and from the summit of St. Stephen's Tower, and though the heavy tramp of German sentries echoed in Trafalgar Square, in the quiet trafficless streets in the vicinity, England was not yet vanquished. The valiant men of London were still determined to sell their liberty dearly, and to lay down their lives for the freedom of their country and honor of their king. End of chapter 9 and book 2 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com